Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Hamish Falconer. Hamish, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Emma. It's been a real honour for me to be part of the programme and to be with here, here with you today. So Hamish, you spent over a decade working as a British diplomat around the world. But the place you talk about the most, the place that you seem to have fallen in love with, is Afghanistan. So what is it about the country that drew you in so much? And what were you doing there? I think that's right. I mean, I did fall for Afghanistan. I, I have fallen. Um, and I think there's quite a simple explanation, which is that some of the most impressive and courageous people I know are Afghans, people who've taken just in, incredible risks for their communities, for their country. And I think it's not just a virus which spreads through personal contact. It's a real, for me, it was a real um, seed of commitment to Afghanistan as well. So that, that, contact those relationships and I hope if any of the Afghan friends I have who are embodiments of this are listening to this podcast they'll know who they are but I think it's that contact that really um, led me to fall. So what were you doing in the country? What was your role there? So Afghanistan was uh, it wasn't my first posting I had I'd been in uh, South Sudan and Yemen and Pakistan largely doing uh, quite technical humanitarian aid work But I went to Afghanistan for my first uh, political posting. I was working for the British Foreign Office. I had a number of elements to my job, but the one which was uh, most central, I think, was an effort to try and start a peace process or to to encourage a peace process between the various parties to the Afghan conflict, of which the UK was one, but more importantly, the Taliban, the Afghan government, uh, the US and various others. Well, the... Afghan peace process, it did start and it's now ongoing. What does peace actually mean in the context of Afghanistan? Are you hopeful for the future of the country? I mean, I I feel like peace in Afghanistan means almost everything. It's been 30 years of horrific violence and it's so difficult to, to look at the news coming out of Afghanistan at the moment, particularly Kabul, which is not just a continuation of a long period of terrible violence, but there's something particularly horrific about some of the recent attacks. And I find that it, it's it's easy when a country is not your own to to slightly glaze over the details that these become sort of just numbers. But when I do key into uh, who has been killed, who has been injured, their the lives that people have led that have been cut short, the impact on their wider communities, it's sort of enough to just stop you completely in your track. So I think a peace process is, is everything for Afghanistan. I mean, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in, in Yale writing and talking about Afghan peace process. Uh, and I am basically an optimist. I believe that Afghanistan can turn the corner on the horrific violence that it's currently suffering. But I think it's gonna we're going to have to buckle up. It's going to be harder. I think, or it's going to be as hard to see through a successful peace process as it was uh, to to fight as hard as everybody has fought in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Now, we've been talking a lot at Yale about how the world is changing, and it's changing rapidly. And it's transitioning from a unipolar world in which the US was the global hegemon 
to a multipolar one. And great power competition is coming back. So what does this mean for the UK? How do you see Britain's role in the world? Well, I think, and, and you know this well, Emma, I think that uh, since 2016, we've had a, a quite a, a bitter at times debate in Britain about what our future looks like, whether or not we're doomed post-Brexit to decline or whether or not we'll have uh, considerably wider options. I think, and it's implicit in your question, that now we really do need to dust ourselves off and, and take a look at the world that we're in. I think you've seen a whole series of countries who are uh, poorer, have less capable militaries or diplomatic services than us, starting to really reshape the world around us, use violence to determine facts on the ground in a way that maybe 10, 20 years ago would have seemed uh, very difficult or very unlikely to happen. And I think that Britain does need to re-engage with the world because that violence is not just happening in far-flung places by regional hegemons, it's happening on Europe's very borders. And I think that Britain has a role to play. I mean, unlike um, unlike some of my colleagues, I do think that Britain is um, Britain is facing the future. It's a country that is going to remain incredibly important, not just because we've got the fifth largest military, that we've got strong diplomatic services, that we're still very rich, but also because there are unique things about us which make us uh, particularly future-facing, whether it's the fact that we're leaders in AI or uh, sustainable uh, climate technologies or just science and technology more broadly. I think the world of the future is one which is going to need more Britain, not less. I mean, partly because we're seeing some of our middle power competitors start to redraw the rules of the game in a way which I think are uh, deeply erosive to our interests. But also because I think the balance of power requires it that Europe is looking um, very weak uh, geostrategically at the moment. And we remain, Europe remains our region. And we remain, I think, probably the most or at least the equal most powerful um, military and diplomatic force in that region. And I think it's time for us to dust ourselves off and get back in the game. So let's imagine that you, Hamish Faulkner, are the Prime Minister of the UK. Funny things can happen, so bear with me, let's imagine this. So what are the areas that you would focus on domestically? What are the main concerns that you have about the country that you would seek to address? And partly so that Britain can play the role that you'd like to see it play in the world. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great big uh, question. And we've talked a lot about uh, British politics and the, the various challenges that we've faced. But if I, if I had to pick one area to really focus on, it would be uh, trying to really take seriously what people are saying uh, when they express their frustration with the status quo. And I think, and this is a cliche now, but I think the Brexit vote was part of that, the big support for the Conservatives in areas which don't traditionally support them in December 2019, I think is also part of that. Labour voters, traditional Labour voters voting for a Conservative government are not doing so, I think, because they want the status quo. I think it's because they they want the opportunity for change that, that people believe Brexit could represent. And my own view is that we need to take seriously people's concerns about uh, 
the nature of work, a, a feeling that people have less dignity, um, that they have less security, and that work is is changing for the worse for them uh, as time goes on. I think there's no magic wand to make the modern uh, globalized capitalist world a, a, an easy place for everyone. But I think there was an enormous, there was enormously greater scope for active industrial strategy, particularly in Britain, which has strength in a whole load of industries of the future, to try and, um, I think, remake a deal between uh, Britain's people and its government about what what work might look like. And we we do have an industrial strategy from 2017, but I think we need something uh, much bigger, much bolder, and something which can can appeal to people as part of a statement about what the Britain of the future could look like. And that sounds like a terribly left-wing thing to say, but I've been really struck during my time in Yale when I started to research it a bit more deeply, the extent to which even quite conservative economic institutions like the International Monetary Fund or even our own Bank of England seem to be making uh, similar arguments, but maybe just in a slightly less um, bombastic way. And another issue I know that's close to your heart is Scotland. Can you explain why there are increasing calls for Scottish independence? And do you fear that the Union may actually break apart? Yeah, uh, it's a great question again. And I mean, to answer the last part of it, yes, I do have serious fears for the Union and and then when you look at polls like the one from today, which shows a narrow majority in support in Scotland for independence, then uh, you, of course you have to take it seriously. And for someone like me, I mean, British listeners will hear in my name uh, Scottishness, but in my voice, an English accent. And I think so many, many, as you know very well, so many, many Brits are of a similar profile where the relationship between Scotland and England is familial, not not political, that many people like my family are uh, Scots who came south, or indeed the other way, English people going going north. So the question of the breakup of the Union for the United Kingdom would be more than simply a question of um, overall population and GDP. It would be a hugely uh, personal and emotional question. Why have we got here? I mean, I think I look at the narrow majorities in polls with with an increasingly um, pained eye after the Brexit experience because I think that one of the things that it's really important to remember about Scotland is that while it is a hugely consequential shaping part of the United Kingdom, it is also a nation of its own. And it's a nation that has expressed a clear preference about Brexit and a preference which is being ignored in favour of um, a majoritarian view. So I think in the future we need to think much harder than we have about how the United Kingdom can respect the constituent parts of the Union, because we're not a majoritarian. Uh, we're not a majoritarian United Kingdom. We we are made up of four different nations, and some respect, I think, has to be given to the, the distinctiveness of that arrangement and in our famously flexible constitution, I think we've made an error in allowing um, just a, a brute majority and a, a thin majority to determine such consequential questions. So we spent a lot of time 
you know, during the semester here at Yale, discussing how to make the world a better place, and how to build good societies, and also how to be your best self, to live a life worth living. What have you taken away from this experience? And how do you think this is going to help you going forward? I mean, it is, it is the conversation we've been having. It's particularly the conversation that lots of us are having. Uh, lots of us, I mean, me and the other fellows are having towards the end of the fellowship, which has been, I mean, you've given us such a fantastic opportunity to think uh, and just be with each other and try and puzzle through together what it what it means to try and leave the world better than you found it, which I think drives all of us and drives lots of people. I think that it's been really striking over this period. I mean, 2020 has been a difficult year for lots of people and for, for many of the people on the fellowship, they've seen you know, horrifying violence in their own countries or uh, divisive politics or disinformation getting its way around the world before the truth has even got its got its boots on. So there have been moments when we all talk about what have we learned from this, where are we going to go next, that it's easy to feel pessimistic in such a moment. But I think that one of the the quotes that that has really stood out to me over this period is something Max Weber said about um, man would not achieve what is possible if he hadn't time and again reached out for the impossible. And I think that the fellowship has been a real uh, encouragement, both both from being in Yale, but also with being with each other to think about how is it that we can try to reach for the impossible in a world which is often going to thwart us, and where many of what we're, many of the things we will try to do, we will almost certainly fail. But it's that that act of reaching for the impossible that I think is um, part of the commitment to trying to make a better world, and that's what I think. Certainly, I will take away from the fellowship, and I, I know the other fellows have that in mind as well. Well, Hamish, I wish you the best of luck as you reach for the impossible. Thanks very much for the conversation, Emma.